Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You are listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a real person sharing their story of loss and the insights they have gained that help them on their journey with grief. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Eric Lichtenfeld, a psychotherapist who specializes in grief, trauma, and anxiety. So welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Eric. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We wanted to talk in this series of podcasts that I'm doing with other professionals who work in grief about myths and misconceptions and ideas about grief that people sometimes have. And so I've asked you some questions about, as we prepared for this, I asked you some questions about what are some of the things that you tell people um, and find yourself repeating in your practice when you're working with people who are working through grief. And we, we talked a little bit about the idea that people have this conception that death ends a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that idea? Sure. Um, when I was uh, studying to um, to get my degree to, to do what I do for a living now, um, I took several courses in loss and grief. Actually, I took... Um, the same course several times because I wanted to get it from different points of view um, because loss and grief has always been, um, um, it, it feels a little strange to have a passion for loss and grief, but it really is um, the, the North star that I've followed um, on my way to, to being where I am now. It's something that's always kind of had a hold on me. And one of the professors that I studied under said something very impactful he said um, that death ends a life, not a relationship. And that is something I find um, myself talking with clients about very often. Um, you know, clinically speaking, um, there was a time when it would have been considered unhealthy, even pathological, if, for example, the, the griever was continuing to talk to um, their lost one that thinking has changed. And now, clinically speaking, uh, it's actually considered a very adaptive part of, uh, of the grieving process. When those who, who have lost someone are trying to deal with the, the enormity of that, the idea that the relationship goes on can be a comfort, though you want to recognize that it goes on in a transformed way. It's, of course, not the same relationship. Um, mm-hmm. but it is not, it is not severed. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the idea that the theories talk about when we talk about the idea of continuing bonds. Is Very that much so, kind yeah. of what you're thinking of in terms of that sense that even though physically the person is not here, you still have a bond. They are still your person. That relationship is still true to you. It is. And you know, I think people will often think in terms, as, as I alluded to before, uh, they'll think in terms of talking to the person they've lost. Um, 
whereas I find, uh, I find this, I found this professionally and I've, I've really found this personally that it's also a matter of, of feeling their presence within. And I don't mean their presence in any kind of like spectral, uh, or, or spiritual sense. Um, uh-huh. I'm talking more, um, of that. I'm, I'm talking more about a sense of continuity. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can give you a, I can give you an example from my own life. Um, okay. when, um, my father died actually six weeks after, um, or maybe, oh, I'm sorry. My father died, I think two, two weeks after I got my license to become a psychotherapist. And, um, and just before I started, um, my first job in the field. And, um, so he was, that was, he was, his absence was kind of a shadow over that early part of my career as a therapist. And I found as time went on though, and that loss did become easier to bear. Uh, there would be moments like, um, I, I was out at my, uh, my kid's soccer game and long story, but I'm, I, I'd gotten there late, I guess, whatever happened, I'm sitting with the wrong team's parents. So I don't know anybody and it's raining. And I had this, you know, and, they're, and they're, these, the other dads are all talking about stuff. I have no idea what they're talking about. And I suddenly had this flash and started laughing. And that flash was, I could just sort of see myself from the outside. I could imagine the look that was on my face and it was the same look that my father had on his face at those little league dinners where he had no interest in any of the people he was mm-hmm. talking, who were talking around him or in what was going on. And I felt so of a peace with him. You know, it wasn't one of these profound moments. It wasn't, you know, these moments you talk about, you know, with a, a family member reaching a milestone and, and you feel the presence of your lost person. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was in the everyday. And it was how the everyday experience created space for him to be there. Um, <laughs> and it was not only comforting, it was, it made me laugh. Yeah. Well, it feels to me like that is, that is you seeing in yourself what you carry of him. Like the legacy that he left is partly you and your life and your being. And so you, you were seeing that reflected that his presence is partly because you are present. I think that's a fair way to put it. I think when we talk about legacies, we have um, a tendency, I, I think, to default to kind of the, to, to the profound, right? You know, we think of yeah. what was bequeathed to us in an ethical will, let's say. And I'm talking about um, the, the much more mundane and everyday. And it's those things, I think, that mm-hmm. on, an, on an emotional level help us stay connected and help maintain that sense of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I sometimes talk about carrying a person in your heart and it's that memory of them and that, that sense of connection to them that you carry through those memories. And, you know, in a similar sort of way, how we have, you know, 
characteristics of them, things that come from them, things we learned from them, right? You know, sometimes mm -hmm. I will laugh and I will hear my dad's laugh in my laugh. I will, I will mm -hmm. hear him as I'm laughing. I sound like his laugh sometimes. And so it's that, that continuity, that connection that we carry forward. That's always part of us for our whole lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that there, any meaningful relationship is a form of knowing, right? Of knowing the other. And so mm -hmm. when those things happen, right? When you hear your dad's laugh in your own laugh and you recognize it, that knowing is happening. Yeah. And it may be that that is the, is what is um, the lifeblood of the, of the, of that ongoing relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that idea. I like that idea. And it feels like, you know, sometimes that sense of connection is really, really powerful for people. And sometimes it feels like um, they, uh, they are not noticing things or they aren't feeling connected to it. Um, and sometimes when people are really connected to it, you know, other people look at them a little bit sideways. Yeah, that's why. Uh, and, and again, that's, um, that used to be found even in, in the clinical, in clinical practice, and in the clinical literature, um, in, in our field. There was a time when, um, when a person doing what you described would have been looked at by clinicians that way. Thankfully, that's less the case now. Um, but certainly it's, it can be true among, um, you know, among the lay people for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that sort of brings the conversation around to, you know, what, um, like, what are the signs and symptoms of grief and how do we normalize what is part of grief? How do we become familiar with it? Um, so that we're not, um, you know, thinking, otherwise of people who are just having this experience that's part of their grief and loss? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a hard question, especially for those of us who don't do this professionally because grief is uncomfortable and uh, people, you know, other people's grief that is, and, and friends and, and other loved ones, you know, even with the best intentions, sometimes want things to be hurried along. They want things to be, you know, in their boxes, um, you know, partly out of a sense of uh, what they think is in the mourner's best interests, but also with what aligns with their own, uh, with their own comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, one of the reasons that grief stories is, exists is to share information um, that is, um, you know, that gives people knowledge and insight into the experience of grief so that if they're experiencing grief, they can have some reassurance and validation of their, of their um, journey. And also if they are supporting someone who's grieving, people can access some right. sound information and a wide range of information too, because what we know is that um, no two experiences of grief will be the same. Right. Yeah, I think that's even in even in uh, the same family, you know, two siblings who lose a parent. Well, those are two different relationships. You mm -hmm. know, it, it gets you can slice it you know, that finely. 
you know, I think one thing that would be very helpful for um, for mourners and for people supporting mourners to recognize is that grief isn't depression. Um, <laughs> they have very different orientations. They have different um, points of reference. Um, you know, grief is very much about. Um, well, I know this sounds intuitive. It's about the situation. Um, that that you know that that terrible feeling is about the situation. It's about the loss. Depression tends to be more inwardly focused. It's about, it, it's a distorted belief about who I am as a person. And so it, I find it frustrating sometimes when people talk about grief primarily in the language of depression um, and try to medicate it. Uh, I don't, that's, that may be a separate conversation, but um, yeah, and, and it, there can be a place for that. I'm, I don't want to say that there is no place for that. You know, to your point, like you can't talk about these things in absolutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it is it's problematic to treat grief as if it is the same thing as depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I I agree completely with you. It comes from a different place, an external experience of loss that is an, you know, an internal experience as well, um, versus that, um, internal view or, or distortion that happens and, um, medication might help someone in rebalancing. If there's an internal distortion happening, I'm not certainly qualified to, you know, identify that as a, a, a truth because I don't do any kind of things with diagnosing or prescribing, but, um, but when it comes to grief, medication can't fix what's happened with grief. Right. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't help the person accept the reality of the loss or figure out how to carry on with this loss as part of their story. Yeah, very true. Um, and as a professional, it, it, it does, I'm not going to say it doesn't get murky because it can. Um, yeah, I've done trainings on loss and grief for uh, other clinicians. And um, one of the, one of the things on my, my slide, it says, um, or my slides reads, um, mourners, something like um, mourners are not depressed unless they are, right? Because there can be comorbidity if you're, if you're a clinician you know, and, and one of your clients becomes bereaved, well, there was a, you know, they were your client for a reason to, to begin with. Um, yeah. uh, so both those things can go on. Uh, yeah, they can coexist, right? They can coexist in the same person's Absolutely. life. Um, and, and, and folks who are dealing with mental health challenges, um, be it depression, be it anxiety, um, trauma, whatever else, um, can be at a heightened risk for developing um, the, what is in the cl- clinically referred to as prolonged grief disorder. I never like the word disorder, but you know, uh-huh. just we have to go with what the book says, just as a as a shorthand, if nothing else. Um, yeah, complicated grief, let's say. So, yeah, these kinds of um, you know, so grief and mental health. And these kinds of mental health cha- challenges can overlap, um, but I also think that grief is sometimes lumped in 
with mental health challenges in a way that it would not have generations ago when we frankly had a different relationship to the process of death and dying or the processes of death and dying and grief uh, than we do today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in, you know, in the days when people lived and died at home um, and and people cared for their own as they died and in, in death, um, there was a, a different relationship, as you said, with yeah. those experiences and a different understanding. And I think sometimes an ability to share that information generationally in a, a way mm-hmm. that we don't necessarily have the capacity to do now because it's so institutionalized and removed from us. Yeah, and there were also more um, public rituals um, for expressing grief and, and for facilitating mourning. Um, it's a, it is a, a more solitary uh, process now, um, I would mm. venture to say, you know, which, which I think puts, which may put us at um, heightened risk for complications. Right. And certainly for feeling like something's wrong with us. Absolutely. Well, and especially when grief is um, so often seen, you know, in that mental health context, you know, there's, um, there's a, uh, one of the leading scholars and researchers on grief, um, Therese Rando. Um, She wrote something that really stayed with me when I was doing my research for, um, um, to develop this training. And what she wrote was that if, you took all the symptoms of grief and removed and removed from that the actual loss. The person experiencing them would qualify as having a psychiatric disorder. Uh, and, and what she said was, and this is the language, you know, bear in mind, this is the language of the time. Um, mm-hmm. Her quote was that um, grief is a form of craziness, but grievers are not crazy. Uh-huh. And she was, I, I think she was referring to the subjective experience um, of grief and the way it, may, it can make you feel like you're going in a million directions at once and simultaneously like you're going nowhere. Um, the way that it is unpredictable. We have this, this false notion um, that's been popularized uh, that grief happens in stages. It doesn't. Um, and I always advise clinicians, it's really important that you understand um, not only that the idea of the five stages of grief uh, is mistaken, but just how popular it is and how it works. Because if, if that's what, what's out there in, in the groundwater for everybody, you know, the, the leading thinking now on loss and grief is that grief doesn't happen in stages. It is facilitated um, through some say processes. Some say tasks, right? But either way, uh-huh. that's what people think in stages. They don't think in terms of these other things. So uh-huh. if you think that you're supposed to be doing grief in this linear way and you're not, what's your assumption going to be? Is your assumption going to be that there's something wrong with the model or is it that there's something wrong with you? Uh-huh. And those clinicians, yep. we need to be sensitive to that. 
Yeah, very much so. And, you know, to this, to a similar idea, when we think about the fact that people can grieve so differently, um, and, and when we get into comparing one another in our grief experiences, that can have us feeling like there's something wrong with us as well. You know, I think in terms of the idea of being an intuitive griever versus an instrumental griever, and mm. how different that can be. Yeah, grief takes, um, we do have this, these different ways of engaging with grief and um, some are more um, gendered than others, uh, or some, I should say some are just more gendered, um, but even that can be misleading. Yeah, right? I don't there's a, there's see a stereotype. intuitive, yeah. I don't see intuitive and instrumental as gendered, even though I know that the literature suggests that it is. Right. Um, but in the people that I talk to about their grief um, on a regular basis, I see that full spectrum in, in all genders that I talk to. Right, and, and within individuals. Yeah. So, yes, I, I didn't true. mean to talk over you, but you know, and what I'm talking about, is I'm talking about the, the stereotypes, right? That men are instrumental grievers, women are intuitive grievers, and that does a great disservice to both. Um, mm -hmm. and especially, and one of the things I've been interested in, um, from professional, professional experience, but also from personal experience is how bereaved fathers are treated, um, uh, or regarded, I should say, um, because very often they, the ways they are expressing their grief are seen as, you know, this very adaptive, proactive coping, um, mm -hmm. at the cost of seeing them as expressions of pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and there's that whole idea that there there's a right and a wrong way for bereaved fathers to be um to be mm -hmm. accepted in their grief. Right. And and Yeah. One of the that, one of the things I've I have always found so interesting um is and I'm honestly I've never really coined the the term for it, but I think, I think in terms of circles of support, um, called concentric circles, concert orbits, but I've always been interested in the people who are not necessarily at the center of a loss, but who are proximal to the center of the loss. Um, I had the uh, interesting experience when my grandmother died and then this may have been what created this interest. Um, it so happened that um, she died just a few weeks before Thanksgiving and, uh, we were across the country. So, um, because we were all going to be going in for Thanksgiving, um, my wife wasn't able to join me for the funeral. So, um, it gave me a really interesting point of view as I was watching people. And there was this very much this sense of, um, it was my maternal grandmother who had died. And so people would say, you know, oh, you know, I feel so terribly for Barbara, my mother, but at least she has Ed, right? My father. Uh, <laughs> I feel so ter I feel so sorry for Mark, my brother, but at least he has Holly, his wife. <laughs> and there were so there were all these people who were the supports. <laughs> and and I, it made me wonder: well, who was feeling bad for Ed? Who was feeling bad for Holly? Um, <laughs> You know, they were the supporting actors, but did they need support themselves? My father had lost a, a mother figure. My sister-in-law had lost a uh, grandmotherly figure. You know, they had 
roles in this other than the the role of the supportive one. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, and and it's and I'll I'll say one of the things I'm proud of in um, how I approached my father's death was, and I hope I'm not it's not uh, tacky to say this, but we were at his deathbed and we were each going to he was unconscious and we were each going to take a moment. Um, it was me, uh, my mother, my brother, and my sister-in-law. And, um, as we were starting to leave the room, so my mother had had her moment, my brother had had his, I had had mine and we were back in the room and, and then I said, wait a minute, it's, Holly, do you want a moment? Because she'd known this man 30 years <laughs> and you know, so it's these, it's these other people who are in the, I don't want to say outer orbits because that doesn't do it justice either, but who are not. <laughs> Who, who would not be seen as central to the loss, who have their own grieving to do and to be facilitated. Mm-hmm. Because they have their own relationship and their own um, memories and sense of caring and all of that. Um, so I just want to say, I, you know, um, I don't think that talking about anything that's real is tacky. I think that what we do is talk about all this stuff that's so real that, and, and that idea of, of, making space for everybody in the family to have an experience, whether they're considered typically considered central or, or as a supporter is so important. And by talking about it, sharing that story and your thoughts about it, it opens up space for other families to do the same, you know, um, and to have that room for um, uh, who can be present, who can mourn and how powerfully they can feel a loss uh, even if it's not what we think of as traditionally um, their loss or them being central, you know. And so I, I love mm-hmm. that perspective of how do we how do we allow everybody to engage in their own way at their own time with their own relationship with grief when someone dies? Yeah. And not feel broken or or crazy or any of that, right? Yeah. I like it. Yeah, one of the things one of the things in my own um, experience that I've always really appreciated and, and something I enjoy uh, when I'm working with clients too is are those thoughts that um, I guess that, that for lack of a better word would seem crazy, right? Those thoughts that those non sequiturs and those strange associations and connections and, and um, things we focus on, um, they can be they can be so shocking. They can be so uh, heartbreaking. They can be so funny. They can be so specific. And I think that those kinds of things really get at what you're talking about, about the uniqueness of each person's grief experience. Mm-hmm. And how each grief experience is related to that relationship with the person who died. I know that, you know, you talked about the fact that, you know, when your dad died your mom and your brother and you all had different experiences because of your different relationships and I would also you know put out there the idea that um, you yourself have had a different grief experience with different people you have lost and um, so even even one person can have those unique um, feelings thoughts uh, processes in terms of um, 
each loss you experience. Certainly when my dad passed away um, in 2009, it was quite different than my experience of the loss of my father-in-law earlier this summer because the relationships were different. I was different um, 10 years later, um, you know. Yeah, and that, that's something I've talked about with clients as well, right? When they're expressing fear about a loss, um, about a, an approaching loss or um, grief over a recent loss and how they're going to handle it and their frame of references, um, how they've suffered in the past. And I'll ask them if they're the same person they were, if they had the same, uh, if they have uh, only the same resources that they had then. Um, you know, we, we, we often don't think about how far we have traveled um, and so that we are approaching loss from a different place um, than we did before. That said, um, it's also very possible for grief, for a loss, I should say, to reactivate the losses that we've had in the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, I may, it may be that I'm acutely aware of that now because many, about, well, 11 years ago now, um, coming up on 12, um, my wife and I lost infant twins. And um, I remember the therapist that I was seeing um, in the aftermath of that sharing this idea with me that losses reactivate the losses um, that we have already endured. And so his, I think he was thinking of, you know, the people I had lost up until then. And where my mind went was to the future because we have this dog. We have this dog, Arthur, who's just the world's greatest dog. And at that point, we had him a few years. And from the moment we got him, I was dreading the moment we would lose him. And so I said to him, great, so when Arthur dies, you're saying I'm going to have to relive all this again? And he said, yeah. Well, now, guess what? We are approaching the end of our time with Arthur. And so I am <laughs> conscious of both of how those losses will be woken up but also how different things are and I am now and how we stretch to accommodate this kind of pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it shifts within us. It, our, you know, our relationship with our pain shifts and changes. I feel too. Um, we experienced, um, six early miscarriages in the course of having our building our family. And um, what I found was, you know, I did a lot of work um, with my grief and my thoughts and feelings and how I handled that. I did some training myself so that I, I could do more work in grief to offer people some of the things that I didn't find when I was looking for them. And, uh, and then I found that around the time that I thought that I had a handle on that experience of those losses, um, we reached the 20th anniversary of the first loss. And um, I happen to have had in my life, um, uh, my best friend's daughter uh, was due the week that we were due with our first pregnancy. And so she turned 20 and it was like this cascade of feeling mm -hmm. rose up again and then, and then kind of went around me. And, and it was different. It wasn't the same as it was in the beginning, but it was still really present and it was important and it needed some attention. And so it's that, that piece I think that's also important. You talk about the reactivation 
of your loss of your children with Arthur's loss and you know pending loss and and that um, it's different now for you even though it's still present and very important right yeah very much and one of the big differences is that in the um, in the time between we did go on to have another set of twins and uh, my son has always been um, acutely sensitive to um, matters of, of loss and of death. I mean, he, when he was, uh, I think he was seven when Tom Petty died. And <laughs> this seven-year-old boy was really focused on, uh, on what Tom Petty's wife must be going through. You know, and he could barely play into the great wide open around our house. You know, without right. coming up, um, and so being his father, I'm very conscious of the of what kind of, the kind of grief leadership that I show. I mean, especially when it came to my father's death and how we talked about that, and and it really focused my thinking on yes, the the pain of the loss, but also on the beauty of the loss, and making sure I was I was communicating to my son, um, honestly, that yes, it was, it was painful, but it was also, it was also good to feel that. Um, <laughs> and, and not just in the sense that it, of what the pain means, but just the experience, it wasn't altogether bad. And, you know, it's funny, my father was the one who planted the idea in my head to one day become a psychotherapist. That was you know, when I was 15 years old, but he also knew that my passion was movies. And one of the reasons that that was so is because he kindled that passion in me from a very early age. And um, one of his favorite movies was Lawrence of Arabia. And there's a moment from Lawrence of Arabia that I always think of. Um, and I think of it on the anniversary of my father's death. I think of it um, I think of it very frequently um, in, in thinking about loss. There's this, there's this great moment in early in the movie where Lawrence is showing this trick that he can do where he holds a match, a lit match to, um, to his skin. And um, one of the characters says to him, doesn't that hurt? And he says, of course it hurts. The trick is not minding that it hurts. Uh and that to me just bullseyes the meaning that to me bullseyes what it means to get through grief or to live with grief live live with is probably the better way to put that and i just love that it is you know from an iconic moment in a movie and it's so applicable to grief um and you know that my my father is kind of the the nexus of the two Yes. Yeah. And that's, and that's part of the beauty of the complexity of our relationships before and after death, right? And how they weave together yeah. all the threads. Yeah. That's a beautiful uh, tapestry we have. Yeah. Ah, thank you so much, Eric, for the conversation. I really appreciate sharing these insights with you and being able to share them in the podcast with our listeners um, so that they can be thinking about these things and knowing that uh, whatever their experience is, that 
um, there's they're they're going to find their own way through it, and um, that there's good support out there, people who can help them find their way and know that they're not, you know, crazy despite feeling the craziness of grief. Yeah. Thank you, Maureen. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we know that this story might be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.